Today's podcast on privilege is presented by NextPoint. Be sure to check out NextPoint at nextpoint.com. Hello, everyone. My name is Josh Gilliland, attorney blogger on Bowtie Law and the Legal Geeks. And with me today for this special podcast is Jason Krauss from NextPoint. Jason is a marketing specialist with NextPoint, a leading provider of litigation support software. Before joining NextPoint, Jason was the legal technology reporter for the ABA Journal and later Law.com, where he wrote about e-discovery and related topics for more than a decade. Jason and I have been familiar with each other's work for nearly that amount of time, and it's it's a pleasure to uh, have you on the line today. Hi, Josh. Great to be here. How How is uh, the great state of Wisconsin today? Cold and rainy. Uh, well, it's, it's like nearly 80 degrees here in California, so come visit. Today, we're going to talk about protecting privilege. There's a lot of privileges out there from attorney-client to marital to trade secret to clergy. So there, there's a lot to look for when we're talking about privilege. Doing privilege review and protecting privilege is hard work, and we've seen a lot of you know, legal teams accidentally waive privilege through simple oversight. When we talk about privilege, you have to think in terms of what goes into a privilege log, and you have to think about the rules of evidence that define those privileges. Federal Rule of Evidence 502 was enacted in 2008 to provide additional reassurances for parties dealing with the problem of inadvertent waiver under FRE 502, Inadvertent disclosure of privileged material does not operate as a waiver, uh, specifically globally, uh, if the disclosure is inadvertent, the holder of the privilege or protection took reasonable steps to prevent disclosure, and the holder promptly took reasonable steps to rectify the error. A lot of meet and confer conferences address these issues, so a lot of discovery orders build in Uh, 502 language into the order itself to help that because under uh, the 502 standard, the privilege is protected. And the purpose of the attorney-client privilege, as we all know and love, is to encourage clients to communicate freely with their attorneys, same as the um, psychiatric uh, patient privilege and uh, the other ones out there. However, if you miss it, you can end up having it waived. Let's talk about what goes into protecting privilege in some of the cases where things have gone either a little wrong or horribly wrong. Jason, what do you think? Well, we've been interested in this problem for a while. We've been looking for ways to sort of help customers prevent inadvertent disclosure. And it's a relatively rare phenomenon, but when it happens, it can be devastating to a matter. And so I just wanted to talk through a couple cases today and sort of demonstrate from real-world examples how it is that attorneys, you know, even smart, well-meaning attorneys can still manage to lose their their right, their privilege. The number one rule, it's that you have to check your work. One of the most instructive recent cases, and for all the wrong reasons, is a great case that everyone should probably read. It's uh, Thorn Creek Apartments versus Village Park Forest in the Northern District of Illinois. In this case, the defendants screened their documents for responsiveness and privilege. You know, they did everything that they're supposed to do. They marked the documents responsive, non-responsive, privilege. And then 
at the end, they just sort of assumed that those privileged documents would automatically be, be excluded from their production database. However, they did not check to see that this was actually true, and they sent the collection along with all of the work product to the plaintiffs. And of course, as you might expect, with this gross oversight, the opposing counsel got to keep the privileged records and introduce them into court and pretty much destroyed the case. Sometimes making an effort isn't enough. You have to make sure that that effort is effective. Another important case that anyone interested in this topic should probably take a little time to read was inhalation plastics versus MedEx. And that was from last year. And in that case, the producing party sent MedEx sent about 7,500 documents to the plaintiff, including 347 documents that were supposed that were marked as privileged. The MedEx attorneys tried to claim that the production was reviewed by several layers of attorneys who isolated the privileged documents and excluded them from the production. The court practically laughed that claim out of court when it noted that that meant that despite those efforts, one in every 22 pages was produced, was privileged. And they found it impossible to believe that the production was even reviewed uh, prior to delivery to opposing counsel. And the last, one last case I wanted to talk a bit about was um, is Don Frio uh, ver versus the uh, Borough of Seaside Park, another case from last year. And in this one, the producing party had identified privileged documents and had a plan in place to remove them from the production. However, the clerical worker who was assigned to remove the privileged documents from the non-privileged uh, reviewed less than half of the data involved. And even worse, uh, none of the attorneys uh, overseeing her work bothered to check that the clerk had been doing her job. And of course, as you might imagine, the privilege was waived and the opposing counsel got to keep the documents. So the bottom line from all these cases is you have to be diligent and look for privileged materials everywhere. Um, you have to look in the attachments, the metadata associated with privileged documents. Uh, you may remember there was a high profile case uh, relatively recently, Google against Oracle. And the case turned into a draw, but it, the case sort of fell apart for Google when they accidentally sent a draft email of a privileged document to opposing counsel and uh, forgot, to, uh, forgot to remove all the drafts from their collection. So even Google makes these kind of mistakes. But you know, it, it just takes a little effort and a, little, and, and a lot of thor thoroughness to make sure that you're not, um, you're not producing privileged documents. And uh, I guess you know, another recurring theme that we've seen in all these cases is, of course, that parties are failing to keep a complete privilege log. And so I guess I'll throw that back to you, Josh, if you want to talk a little bit about the basics and mechanics of, of keeping a detailed privilege log. Well, you have to remember privilege logs are defined under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure, Rule 26B5, which states that the privilege log must expressly state the privilege and to describe the nature of the information not being disclosed without revealing the information which will enable the other party to assess the claim. When you look at a lit support product, and I've been a very strong believer in this for over eight years, you have to use one of those wonderful products like, like what NextPoint has in building your privilege log to say it's not just privileged but it is a marital communication. It is an email between the patient and their doctor. It's an email or text message between the attorney and the client if, if you have a relationship where the attorneys and the clients are texting each other. The next phase in the analysis is just not 
checking a box saying attorney-client privilege, but actually defining the coding features in the product to explain what it is, that it's the communication from the lawyer to the client giving legal advice. It is a email from the patient to the doctor seeking a medical opinion. You have to think in those terms, and you have to be able to describe what is being protected and why. There are a lot of product demos that you see where the product demo just shows checking a box that says privilege. You have to do more than that. You have to explain it, and then you know, being able to export that information out to an Excel file, so that way you can show the other side, here's the privilege log, we built it while doing doc review, and notice how specific it is in meeting our requirements under Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 26B5. The other thing to remember in, in developing this is figure out the privileges that you're going to have to deal with in your case. We love focusing on the attorney-client one. They happen a lot. If you're dealing with a husband and wife, you could have a you know spousal privilege communication that's in there and, and have to be able to describe that and make sure it's defended. You could deal with an odd bring-your-own-device policy issue, say that the person has the personal cell phone that's used for work, maybe work pays for it, maybe work pays for part of it. You have to look at the expectation of privacy that was created with the employee-employer contract and the usage policies. Uh, but you then start wondering, are the text messages sent from the wife's work phone to the husband's personal phone protected by the spousal privilege? Is it a marital communication? And I, I would say it is. I would sure argue that if I represented the husband or the wife in being able to try to protect it. But those are the things you have to think about. And if you're challenging it, you have to be able to say with a straight face, they were using a personal phone that was used for work with no expectation of privacy. Therefore, there is no protection attached to that communication. So it can get very complicated very quickly, but those are some of the big things that you have to, to think about in dealing with building a privilege log, thinking about privilege before you even start privilege review on what's at issue in the case. And if you want to attack it or challenge it, you have to be able to look at the nature of the communication and any other surrounding facts that could show its validity or attack it. There is another issue out there when it comes to privilege logs and that happened in a very recent case. The case is entitled Enri Coventry Healthcare Inc. versus This Document Relates. It is a March 2013 case and where one side said privilege review was really expensive and they were trying to make an, an undue burden argument about that. And the court cited back to an old uh, Judge Grimm opinion where they said, let's just put a giant protective order over everything, therefore you don't have to do privilege review. That scares me. While I think it's not a bad idea to have a protective order on a case, I wouldn't abandon doing privilege review and doing a privilege log just because I'd rather have a client be upset about a bill than a client be upset about inadvertently disclosing something to the other side, even if there is a protective order in place.
Jason, what are your thoughts uh, on that issue? I, th I think that's a great point. I like I like the way you put it. That uh, it's you know having having a client upset about a bill is a lot worse than having a lot better than having the client upset that you've completely destroyed the case and you know probably ruined any chance of them getting satisfaction. Yeah, even with the protective order in place, they might be able to, to to argue that there's a way to save it because that's the purpose of a protective order. But you you can't unring the bell. No. The other side might might find the information somewhere else. You know, you've tipped your hand, and now you're going to be dealing with the expense of motion practice to make sure it's not brought in in an, either an eliminate motion or something. You know, some other procedure, and I just. I, I wouldn't want to be in that position. No, and we've actually seen some cases where judges have ignored protective orders, and you know I don't know how you'd go back to your client and explain to them, you know, um, sorry, we you know we waived <laughs> we waived the right to privilege here. We had a protective order. I don't know what happened. So, yeah, I mean, granted, five hundred two was supposed to address those issues to avoid global waivers. Uh, there were horrific cases from, you know, the early and mid-2000s where that was happening. Uh, there was Firestone litigation involving exploding tires where information was missed in a production in a class action. And then in a later one, they tried clawing it back. And if they had caught it the first time around, they would have been able to have clawed it back the second time around, but because they missed it the first time around, uh, they had waived that privilege on, on that particular communication. Yeah. So, and 502, you know, specifically addresses that. You know, there are issues also whether or not 502 is constitutional, because a magistrate judge sitting in the middle of the United States could enter a protective order on one issue that binds every federal and state court judge in the United States. And there's a good argument that might exceed uh, constitutional uh, the abilities of, of that statute. Um, no one's tested that because everyone pretty much thinks 502 is a good thing. But there is that argument there if that ever came to pass. And I know there are some magistrate judges who are quite aware of that whenever they enter into you know the, 50, the world of 502. Yeah, it's a it's a great rule in theory, but in practice, there's still some questions about how how it's enforced sometimes, and I don't think you want to rely on it, rely entirely on it. It's a good thing to have. I would still do privilege review. I would still do a privilege log. It's for the I'm oops, we missed something because there was two terabytes of data and perfection's not the standard. Yeah, yeah. The I mean the, the interesting thing you know in in um, demonstrating demonstrating your competence to your clients is when it comes to the inadvertent waiver of privilege, you always protect your right to privilege as long as you can demonstrate that you've worked hard, that you've done everything you can to possibly protect it. Because even if you do accidentally produce uh, documents to opposing counsel, if you can demonstrate that, you can get those materials back or take stricken from the record. Um, the question here is to, you know, to be able to demonstrate how hard you worked and how vigilant you were in protecting this right. Exactly. You know, you, you think back to cases such as the Feldman uh, products case from 2010, 
uh, where you know Judge Robert Chambers had the quote that the ridiculously high number of irrelevant materials and the large volume of privileged communications produced demonstrate a lack of reasonableness. And they got in trouble. I mean, like, there was a lot there that they had let slip through. Uh, and even even with the producing party admitting that nearly 30% of their production was ir- irrelevant, included car and camera manuals, personal photos, and, of course, pornography. The court was not very keen on that, and, and there was a waiver there because of it. Uh, the issue is always I would be very thorough in privilege review. I would encourage people to have a 502 type language included in their scheduling order that they get at their 16B conference and be very specific in doing privilege review and build a good privilege log. I think those are some of the uh, keystones to protecting privilege. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's, it's obviously a relatively rare phenomenon, but it's an important, important issue and obviously a devastating problem if it, if it happens to your case. You know, and that's, that's why we've we've obviously been interested in trying to solve solve the problem here at Next Point. Could you share how you attack the problem? Um, well, we, last year we actually introduced a product called Privilege Protect into our Discovery Cloud service, which is an automated um, uh, analysis. It performs an automated analysis of all privileged documents, all documents that have been marked privileged in your collection, and compares them against your production database. And it'll find similar documents in your production database and alert you to them so that you can do a final review and make sure that you review any potentially privileged documents before you actually produce to opposing counsel. So we've, we've, you know, used, you know, some intelligent algorithms to sort of automate the process of doing this final check so you don't inadvertently produce to opposing counsel. Very cool. And I'm sure if people are interested, you would be happy to give them a demo of how, on how that works. Well, uh, Jason, I appreciate your time. Uh, I look forward to seeing you at a future legal conference or if I'm, uh, when I'm in the Midwest, uh, hopefully we can meet up. <laughs> Absolutely, we'll do. And hopefully I'll, uh, I'll try to get to California sometime during the winter. That's an excellent plan. I want to thank NextPoint for presenting today's podcast on privilege. To learn more about NextPoint, please visit nextpoint.com.